Today on Basic, the head of FX Networks, John Landgraf. That's the thing that I would just say about Basic. It was just fantastic feeling like there was open territory. You could make things that had never been made before, that were new. You felt like you were pushing the edge of the medium forward. HBO, Showtime, and FX all had distinctive perceptual lanes, and you could sort of feel what was an FX show versus an HBO show versus a Showtime show. The anti-hero formula, the notion that you can make something about a a high school teacher turned meth dealer, you can make something about a corrupt police officer, you can make something about a dysfunctional fireman, you can make something about a screwed up advertising aged guy. It was starting to feel a little played out. Hey everyone and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive and now, well, I host a podcast. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic at Vulture in New York Magazine. And now I host a podcast with a former cable TV executive. Well, Jen, our guest today is a current TV executive, and he is really one of the best, isn't he? He definitely is. Uh, John Landgraf is the chairman of the FX Networks. He's presided over FX for many, many years, leading them into the world of premium scripted dramas and comedies, and is responsible for launching some of your favorite shows, among them Rescue Me, The Americans, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Fargo, and Atlanta, to name just a few. He is also the inventor of the phrase Peak TV. Wow, I am so intimidated. Truth is, I always was. John is an exceptional executive. I competed against him for many years. He's brilliant and creative, and he's one of cable TV's true champions. If you are a TV fan, hang around because this interview is a real masterclass in TV programming. And make sure to listen all the way to the end of the podcast for a TV recap of sorts from me and Doug. Awesome. Well, John Landgraf, we are so excited that you're joining us here on Basic. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. So there's a question that we tend to ask of all of our guests as a first question. And that is, do you remember when you first got Basic Cable and like what you made of it? I remember MTV. I guess I guess for people of my generation, and I think Doug, you and I are of similar age, MTV was was the sort of first basic cable cultural force in pop culture, you know, not news, not CNN. So I remember that, but I, I didn't think much of basic cable as a purveyor of scripted programming. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I, even when, when I was approached to come to FX, I really didn't take the approach seriously. And that, that was naive of me because, because FX had already made the shield and nip tuck, but I just didn't see it as a meaningful source of good scripted programming that would have been in 2003. Can you put into context what FX was like before The Shield for people who may not remember that far back? Like, what was the network? What was the programming like? I mean, it started as a live television service with the slogan TV Made Fresh Daily with a, with a live studio. And I think they tried a whole lot of different things. They had bare knuckle fighting on it. The thing that really, I think, spurred distribution was NASCAR. They had NASCAR races and they, for a long time, famously, the highest rated segment of programming the FX networks had was a NASCAR rain delay. <laughs> they had MASH reruns, I think, as I recall. They had MASH reruns. They had a short-lived live morning show out of New York, if I'm getting this right. I think somebody knew produced and that. Had, um, Tom Bergeron, I think, was the host of that. And then prior to MMA, they had that Butterbean guy, right? That's right. 
And then they, they made Son of the Beach. I think that was the equivalent in the FX canon of the first in 10 Bulls Mean Business era of Fox. <laughs> they made a very good comedy called Lucky that the Russo mm-hmm. brothers directed the pilot to that starred John... John Corbett. John Corbett. I didn't know about The Shield or Nip Tuck. So what happened was Kevin Riley was leaving FX to go to the broadcast network. Peter Liguori, who was running FX, was looking for a replacement. He came to me. I was at Jersey TV, partnered with Danny Vito and Michael Schamberg and Stacey Scher and loved it there and demurred. And then he finally came back around eight or nine months later and said, look, I'm going to have to hire somebody other than you if you don't take this job. Are you sure you don't want to take this job? Why don't you watch this? And so he gave me the first two seasons of The Shield and the first season of Nip Tuck. And I was like, well, don't be a schmuck. Like, sit and watch the guy's programming. And I was astonished. I mean, I just watched those three seasons of television. And I was they represented pretty much exactly what I wanted to be doing and had not been able to do in broadcast television. In that period at Jersey, I sold more than 50 projects in development, made nine pilots, and got a show on every one of the broadcast networks that failed. And the only show that I developed during my time at Jersey that didn't fail was Reno 911, which Herzog <laughs> are the beneficiary of. Yeah. And not coincidentally, whether you like Reno 911 or don't like Reno 911, it is exactly the show that the creators set out to make. Mm-hmm. So it's the only show in which I was able to, and this is with the benefit of the of, of Comedy Central and the team at Comedy Central, I was able, with their help, to help the producers realize their vision, what they wanted. And not coincidentally, I'm still getting profit checks from that and it's still being produced. Mm-hmm. There's still more still going. locals and seasons of Reno 911 happening. So I had this tremendous frustration by that time of not being able to protect the writer in the broadcast business, having put series on all four broadcast networks that were not what the writers set out to make. And then I saw The Shield and I saw Nip Tuck and I was like, well, I don't know what's in the water there, but clearly no executive has noted either one of these shows to death. Like these shows are utterly what they want to be and were intended to be. I'm a little stunned that an astute observer of television like yourself, that you hadn't really checked out The Shield or Nip Tuck. I really hadn't. It's not a point of pride, to be honest with you. It's just the truth. (laughs) That's the news coming out of this one. (laughs) And once I saw them, it was, you know, I hightailed it over to FX immediately. So you get to FX in 2004, I think, right? Four. February of 2004. Before that, when I was coming over, Peter Ligori had sent me a pilot to a show called Rescue Me and said, what do you think? And I said, I think this pilot needs work, but you have to pick it up. And so then my first order of business when getting there was trying to figure out how to take what was, I thought, a really promising pilot and make it a great pilot. This is right in line with what we're talking about. There's something that felt to me like it was not fully realized. And I asked for the original two-hour movie script that was like eight drafts ago. And I went and read that script and realized that a lot of the material that I that was missing from the pilot that was needed had already been written by Dennis Leary and Peter Tull. And it was in that original script. Now, there were some reshoots that were new material that we asked them to create. But a lot of what we did is just restore material that had been lost along the way. So that was the first thing I worked on. And then probably because I was trying to push and see how far the envelope would go, the next thing we made was Rescue Me, which was a show about the Iraq war during the Iraq war. I think partially because I wanted to see, were we going to get censored? And we did that with Stephen Bochco and Chris Geralmo. You gave the wrong title, though, not Rescue Me. It was called Over There. Over There, right. So just to back up a minute, 
when you got there in 2004, what were they telling you the drill was? What was the, you know, you, you arrived day one and they say, here's what we want you to do, John Landgraf. What was kind of awful and great about it, Doug, was that the network at that point had two enormous critically acclaimed successes in a row with Shield and Nip Tuck. So that makes your job harder. It really does. I mean, I thought that was great, but, you know, The Shield was the first scripted series to win a major Emmy Award, basic cable scripted series to win a major Emmy Award. Nip Tuck and The Shield both won the Golden Globe for Best Drama Series. They both were selected for, you know, every honor you can think of. And then Rescue Me comes along. And by the way, you know, I, I did have a lot to do with Rescue Me creatively, but it had been developed beforehand. And I was like, oh, I'm a schmuck. How is anybody ever going to repeat this troika of drama series in a row even getting one though off the bat i mean you know you came in to a network that already had two hits i used to love taking over networks that were in the toilet because there were no there's nowhere to go but up but there were great expectations at fx now for everything that was going to come down the pike but but you met them right off the bat well it didn't feel that way at the time I guess because then the next thing that happened is I think the next several dramas we launched all failed, right? So we still had The Shield, Nip, Tuck, and Rescue Me for a while. And I worked assiduously with some people that are still there, Eric Schreier and Nick Grad, on a current level to sort of try to keep those shows strong and really figure out how to not just launch a show and sustain a show, but how to end a show when to end a show, how to end a show. Those shows all had good, healthy runs too, right? They did. So we were successful in that regard. I think The Shield has a particularly strong run and finale. The thing that's interesting about TV, and I think you guys have both been around it long enough to know, is you, you really don't know. So while all that was going on and I was struggling to find new dramas, and initially there was some difficulty after those three I was fighting to get into the studio business because we didn't produce television shows, but I knew how to make really inexpensive comedies because of Reno 911, because they had foolishly let us be the studio on Reno 911. They also foolishly figured out how to do it really cheap. We did really cheap. And we started, we made a comedy from these three guys who'd never done anything, had no show running experience, no writing experience. They weren't members of the Writers Guild. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. I think it was viewed a little bit as a folly. It didn't come roaring out of the gate. It struggled a little ratings-wise in the first season. It struggled in the second season, but we added Danny DeVito to it, so it had a little bit of oomph. And then in the third season, Nielsen put college kids' measurement into their Nielsen panel. And so they if you were a Nielsen household, they measured the viewership patterns of your college-age household members and their roommates. So by definition, the college dorm became an extension of the Nielsen house. And lo and behold, it's always sunny in Philadelphia was a hit. Like, boom, it was a hit. And we owned it. And so what I have expected, the thing that would provide a little bit of fuel, a little bit of relief from the pressure of trying to replace these dramas to be this obscure, unbelievably cheap comedy that we made and owned, no. But it just came on strong in its third season. And you know, it's still running. It's it's picked up. How many seasons now? Eight. It's picked up through eighteen. It's Unbelievable. Making season sixteen now, and well, that's that's. Uh, you deserve congratulations for that for sure. That is a great run. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So I realize this is kind of a broad question, but I'm curious especially in those early days when you were making decisions about which shows to run with, be it drama or comedy, were there certain distinguishing characteristics? I mean, I know FX has always defined itself as being, you know, edgy and pushing boundaries, but were there certain things that you would see and go, okay, that's definitely an FX show. Yeah. I mean, this will be absolutely impossible for your listeners to even believe, but at that time, because this is before AMC got into the scripted programming business and none of the other premium networks besides Showtime and HBO were in the business. So there were really only three buyers for that kind of programming. And we almost never competed for the same shows. HBO, Showtime, and FX all had distinctive lanes, perceptual lanes. And you could sort of feel what was an FX show versus an HBO show versus a Showtime show once or twice a year. We might go after the same show with one of those two competitors. So it was crazy because now there's no show that's any good that doesn't have potentially 10 buyers for it. But that's how specific things were. And, you know, we heard the pitch for Mad Men. HBO heard the pitch for Mad Men. AMC were the people that had the capacity to say, let's go for this. And Breaking Bad was developed at FX. We had control of it. And I made damages. We had a desire to not be a white male anti-hero network. We had three shows with white male anti-hero leads, The Shield, Nip Tuck, Rescue Me. And so 
we didn't make Breaking Bad. I mean, little did I know that I was passing on truly one of the great dramas of the golden era of television, but that's the way the ball bounces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you never know, of course. Nobody knows. And it's sort of amazing to hear you talk about Showtime and HBO in comparison to FX, because as you were making these shows, a lot of people were talking about, oh, well, these are great shows and they could be on HBO or Showtime. And, you know, you were really breaking you know, new ground in so many ways on basic cable, but uh, they they felt like premium shows, and that was that was a that was a huge thing for basic cable at the time. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a time before HBO started making programming that only broadcast networks made quality scripted programming, and HBO was the first mover in that. And you know, there were there were other good things. I always have respected Comedy Central and felt like they've had really really good comedies on the air and. Battlestar Galactica was on sci-fi and it was good. And Monk was on USA. You know, we weren't the only game in town, but we were close to it until AMC came along. So because you were kind of among this big three, you, FX, HBO, Showtime, did you have any trouble attracting talent to what was basic cable or because there was kind of the three of you, were people really coming to you? We didn't know how good we had it is really the answer to relative to what it's like today. It was shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) I think television had difficulty attracting talent of a certain level. Movies were still where it was at more creatively and it was still a big deal. I remember flying to New York to try to talk Glenn Close into joining the fourth season of The Shield. And she was famously someone who had done TV, even when she was one of the bigger movie stars in the world. She'd done the Marguerite Kammerer story on NBC. So she was a major feature film actress. Yeah, she was. Mm -hmm. But it was a big deal to get Glenn Close to come do. Like now, we could probably count the number of actors that wouldn't do a television series on definitely two hands, conceivably one. But it wasn't like that. There might have been... 50 actors that wouldn't do TV. And there were writers and directors that wouldn't do TV. So they were more likely to go to HBO if they were going to come to TV. So I think it would have been very difficult for us to get, say, Angels in America. Like it would have been difficult for us to get that level of writer, director, and cast come do that show. And frankly, we didn't have those kinds of budgets to really step up and make things at that level. We were still under pressure to make a much less expensive television shows from a financial standpoint. HBO was always a little ahead of us. You sort of brought back the notion of anthology series with FX and a number of different series. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived at some of those decisions and making commitments to shows like American Horror Story and such. I have to credit Ryan Murphy with the idea because an anthological series to me, Doug, was Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It was a show in which the narrative changed every episode. And it's hard for people to believe there was a time when there really wasn't horror on TV. If you want to make a show that goes seven years, you can make Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You can make something about a slayer, but it's very hard to make actual. And then there were none horror because everybody dies. Right. And Ryan came to me and said, well, I think I have a way of doing it, which is I I like creating things, but I get bored with them. And so I want to make a show in which I can do the design and the, and the setting and the characters and costuming and makeup and the hair and the casting. And I can reboot it every year. And so that was a yes. I just said yes right out the gate. I just had a, I'm not right all the time. Maybe I'm not right most of the time, but there's times when you just know what you know. And I just knew that was it. But I also realized, oh, wait a minute. We're struggling at this moment in time because the anti-hero formula, like the notion that you can make something about a 
high school teacher turned meth dealer. You can make something about a corrupt police officer. You can make something about a dysfunctional fireman. You can make something about a screwed up advertising aged guy. It was starting to feel a little played out. And frankly, it had become the bastion of white men. And the world was sort of moving on from that as being the central animating point of view of prestige TV. We had tried with damages very hard to put a female anti-heroine at the center of one of those types of shows. Turns out audiences, I think, are willing to forgive men (laughs) a lot more than they're willing to forgive women. You're kidding. (laughs) I know that's got to be shocking to you, Jen. Yay, man. (laughs) So we leaned into the anthological format partially because we were struggling at that point to find great dramas. It wasn't we couldn't find any, but all of a sudden it felt like a really exciting and vibrant new form. Because when the miniseries was a thing, and not that there hadn't been wonderful miniseries made, but the production techniques and the production values and the writing and the casting possibilities of television had widely expanded since the early era of the miniseries. And so the limited series came along and it was like, oh, wow, this is great. This is a whole new wide open field. And that's the thing that I would just say about Basic, which Doug, I know you experienced. It was just fantastic feeling like there was open territory. There was open field. You could make things that had never been made before that were new in television. You felt like you were pushing the edge of the medium forward when you, you know, something like South Park or something. Well, and also that you could pick a lane and kind of have a lane and at least for a while own a lane until somebody else figured out what your magic trick was and finding those white spaces in the culture and in the landscape and just going after it rather than trying to do something that everybody was going to like. Yeah. And if you got one, you know, it was one of a kind. There really was nothing else like Breaking Bad or The Shield or Nip Tuck or Rescue Me or South Park. Nothing. Right. You were not going to find it on broadcast television for sure. Yeah. Right. And to your point, they really weren't HBO or Showtime type shows. No, they weren't. I've always loved HBO shows and, and watched them. I've always been a big fan. There always has been some overlap between what they do and what we do, but they had their own lane and we had our own lane. I don't think anybody can have any lane anywhere now. If you take the number of scripted programs that aired last year, 2021, you divide by 52 weeks, you end up with more than 11 original shows per week. In an environment where there are 11 shows premiering per week, some of them may not be bingeable, but I mean literally premiering, there is no open field. You just can't find it. And so that's a drag for those of us who have some sense of nostalgia. Or or those of us actually still working in television. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I've given up for podcasts to find my own lane, John. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) By the time I go into the podcast business, you guys will have taken all the lanes on that too. There won't be any left. Oh no, there's always, there's always room for you. There's always room for more, John. But you're touching on something that Doug and I have talked about and that I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, which is. In terms of having your own lane, I feel like FX and HBO and a lot of these networks, they had a real identity and a brand identity. And now because of streaming and because, you know, I might watch an FX show on Hulu or if I'm in another country, maybe it's Disney Plus. I think it's harder for a network to have a brand because everybody's discovering the shows through different means. Is that something that you think about? How do you address that? I I wouldn't say think about it. I would obsess over it because... Mm -hmm. If you really think about how difficult it is to capture anybody's attention about any television show, certainly a new television show, the first thing they're going to notice is the show, some characteristic of the show. What's, what's, what is it a comedy or a drama? Is it scripted? What's it about? Who's in it? 
The second thing they're going to look for is where do I go to watch it? So if you're really lucky, the third thing they might notice is who's bringing this to you as the sort of presentational brand, right? So what FX is matriculating towards, we still have channels. There are three FX channels, FX, FXX, and FXM. But increasingly, what we are is a brand like Marvel or Pixar or Disney or Lucasfilm that is a presenting brand. It's an above the title Mm -hmm. brand. So it's FX's blah, blah, blah. But at best, that's the third thing you're going to notice, right? So I find this a fascinating question, Jen, because on the one hand, I think when there's a superabundance, brands have utility. So you just imagine the thought exercise of going into the neighborhood market, you could navigate it without brands. You went into like a modern supermarket and there were no brands, it would be disastrously difficult for you to navigate. And that's sort of how I feel like these vast streaming libraries are like to me sometimes. Now, there are people Mm -hmm. that absolutely feel that algorithmic recommendation and machine learning will solve that problem. But for me, I have a very fine qualitative filter and a tonal filter. The thought exercise I've used is imagine this logline, two brilliant sociopathic teenagers murder their billionaire parents for the money. I just described a Fox Focus or Searchlight film. I described an FX or HBO limited series. I just described a Lifetime movie, Mm -hmm. ABC News special, an A&E docuseries. And I would say that if you want the Lifetime movie, you don't want the Searchlight movie. And if you want the Searchlight movie, you don't want the Lifetime movie. And if you want the 20th Century Fox films version with big movie stars, you don't want the A&E docuseries. But if you want the A&E docuseries, you may not want the go to the movies. So, Well, that's what the brands did. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Basic cable was built on tremendous brands, MTV, CNN, ESPN, you know, whatever, Lifetime, FX. All these networks meant something to the viewer. And to your point, getting yourself into Netflix is like entering Walmart to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And there's a gazillion products on the shelf. And not all of them, or a lot of them, are not, not branded. I compare, at least for my day, I don't know what you think, John. I look at the streamers versus basic cable networks. And I think I was running a boutique. Yeah. And these mm-hmm. guys are running Walmart. It's... Well, Netflix is Costco because you do need a membership. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, fair enough. Amazon too, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So that's a long way of getting around to what do you think is the future of the great traditional linear cable brands, FX, MTV, Comedy Central, AMC, et cetera? Well, I mean, I think that the answer to that is it feels on some level like it's in the hands of the gatekeepers, meaning those that are running the corporations and the modern streaming services, because they'll make the decisions about how much to prioritize those brands or not. But in the long run, I think the answer lies in the minds and hearts of the consumers. I think that if consumers don't want brands, they will cease to exist. I think if consumers do want brands, they will remain. I find brands very helpful you know, harbingers, like they, they're helpful navigational tools for me, but people don't use brands to navigate inside streaming services. So when I say literally navigate, Comedy Central was literally a place you went. So it was a brand and a location. So it was FX. To the extent that Comedy Central or FX exists in the future, I do not believe they will ultimately be locations. You have always been 
one of basic cable and cable television's greatest champions, greatest spokesperson, always out there trying to figure out how to level the playing field, famous discussions around peak TV and the advent of the streamers. Now you find yourself sort of straddling both worlds, right? Both the linear world and the streaming world. So how does that feel and how are you navigating that? Well, it feels good in the sense that FX's distribution was just relentlessly declining. We went down from 100 million homes plus to 70 million. But but the usage of linear television and the amount of consumption of series on linear television has gone down enormously, particularly with younger people. So we just got to layer on a new distribution system with 45 million homes onto it. And so all of a sudden, all of our shows grew massively overnight. So to be able to reach younger viewers and be relevant again is absolutely fantastic. What's difficult is that I ran the channel and it was a business. It had a profit and loss statement. We curated every second of that channel. We didn't decide every commercial that went on, but we programmed it. We made all the promos. And I don't program Hulu as a streaming service. And it's it's a different environment for scripted programming with tens of thousands of pieces of storytelling rather than the notion that a channel was like a pyramid where the apex was the 10 p.m. hour. So the things that are creative... I have the exact same control over that I used to, you know, marketing and publicity and commissioning and the studio and the development and business affairs and all the things, but the distribution parts of it, I just don't control. Those two things have really been separate. And Doug, in your era, the head of creative and the head of some form of business and distribution were all one thing. And now they really typically are not. And I really liked the experience of trying to solve business problems with creative solutions, creative excellence. And I like the idea of trying to figure out how to make creative excellence that would fulfill business missions. Now we're still doing that in the sense that we're not just willy-nilly making shows. We're trying to make them to achieve some set of goals within the Walt Disney Company, within Hulu, within Disney General Entertainment, which is where FX is housed. But it's it's just a much wider, more wide open environment. And you know, maybe that's good for consumers. I, I will say that there's a famous study on something called the paradox of choice, and they use the number of choices of jam in a supermarket aisle. And what they found is that there is an optimal inflection point. In other words, if you only give someone choice of two kinds of jam, three kinds of jam, five kinds of jam, they will only consume three or four or five kinds of jam. But if you give them 40, they will only consume like five or six or seven. If you give them 11, they'll try nine or 10, right? There's a point where you have enough variety that you really have a sense of abundance, but you have a limit of variety to the point where you can actually pay attention to every choice. Once you get past the point where you can actually track and pay attention to other choice, you have a different kind of misery, which is that you know that there's better stuff out there or good stuff that you can't get to or that you don't even know about. And so you don't have the sense that you've mastered the terrain and that you're actually consuming the thing that you most would enjoy and that's best for you. And I think we've put the consumer in that dilemma at this point. And, you know, I'm hoping that brands can help them cut that down and navigate it a little bit. But the truth is we're just making more television than anybody could possibly want or consume. I think that's called peak jam. Peak jam. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you one other question too, which is, you know, we haven't talked in much detail about the shows themselves that, that you have programmed um, more recently. Um, But I'm just curious, like, what was maybe the biggest gamble, um, the show that you thought, wow, this is is a real risk, but I want to take that risk? 
stumped me with that one. I know it's probably hard to single out one, but I mean, I guess I maybe I thought pose was a risk. Mm. I never really debated whether to do it. Part of that is because it, it just had never been done before. Like it always has seemed to me to be worth doing something that has never been done before. And I believed in Ryan Murphy. He was really passionate about it. And when I knew it was going to work was we had an open casting process and they looked for people all over the country. And then we had a meeting, Dana Walden was there and Ryan Murphy was there and they brought in the cast of Pose. And it was just, what was evident to me is something I've seen over and over and over again, which is there doesn't matter what underrepresented identity you're talking about. I guarantee you that there are people who are brilliant, creative, capable, ambitious, and who are underutilized, right? So it's an arbitrage opportunity if you want to look at it through a business model, right? And of course, what we found with trans actors is brilliant actors who had no opportunity to work, who were just waiting for someone to write a part for them. So when I saw them, I knew it would work. But before that, nothing, no one had ever done anything like that. I had no idea how that was going to conceive. So it's maybe it's less about a sense of risk as a sense of and this is, I think, the thing that's kept me in it for so long. And I, Doug, I know you'll understand this, is this idea of sort of being a, an adventure, you know, an Arctic adventure, you know, like you're trying to find a corner to go around where no one's been around that corner before. And you have no idea how to survive the terrain or what's coming or what the weather's going to be like, because no one's ever done it before. I always talk about myself, and I think you would talk about yourself to a certain degree as an executive, as using your gut and your instinct quite a bit. I know we both had a lot of information at our disposal and ratings and focus groups, whatever it was. But I think when push came to shove, somebody like yourself was moving on gut and instinct largely. Data has started to play such a big role, it seems, in programming decisions at the streamers, which you now have some insight into. Is that something you're sort of rubbing up against these days? I'm not. I, I really appreciate the way... Disney set itself up with brands and studios and commissioning teams. I mean, we look at information, we seek it, but we we really have a lot of authority. And I've always been a wonk. I've always been interested in data, but I've never thought it was particularly useful is that I, you're really betting on people. At the end of the day, you're, yes, it's an idea. Yes, it's a concept. Yes, you can go out and show it to people and measure it, or you can ask this or ask that, or sort of look at what's been a hit in the past and what people seem to like. But really what you're betting on is a person. You're really trying to assess what the person wants to achieve and the degree to which they have the passion, the energy, and the capacity, the stamina to achieve it. If I look at a, all the good decisions I made, I made them because I bet on the right person. And if I look at the bad, like if I go back to Breaking Bad, I should have bet on Vince Gilligan. I should have been paying less attention to anything other than this guy and why he is just one in a million, why he is so extraordinary. And I, you know, what does data tell you about the difference between Vince Gilligan and Joe? It, it can't. Nothing. It's just not something you can do ever. Yeah. Is not greenlighting Breaking Bad, is that your biggest regret programming wise? No, because it got made and I got to mm -hmm. enjoy it. I mean, I wish it had been FX's instead of AMC's, but the truth is we did the right thing. We let it go and somebody else made it. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. I mean, and you didn't suffer. I mean, you continued making great shows beyond that. <laughs> if you never made another great show, it might have been a problem. Right. Good point. But we did. So I don't, you know, nobody can own creativity and right. no one's ever going to win this. This is, a, this is an unwinnable thing. All you can do is be good at it or not good at it and try to remain good at it. I'm going to ask you now the hardest question of the session. 
which is excluding anything you have ever been involved with on the FX network. What is your all-time favorite basic cable show? And you can't say Reno 911 because that's also <laughs> That would have been a good loophole, though. Yeah. You know, it would be Mad Men or Breaking Bad. Those are both right up there in the same terrain. And I can't tell you how painful it was when we sort of owned the gold standard in basic cable to have this group of people at AMC come along and I mean, you know, make two shows that between them have won all these Emmys. FX has never won an Emmy for best drama. Is that or, true? We never or have. Or best comedy. You've won or limited series, but not not the other two. Yeah. That's right. So you can imagine what it felt like to have AMC come along and do that. But on the other hand, I got to hand it to them. They did it. You know, those shows are great. Well, John, thank you so much for being here. John Landgraf is arguably one of the great television executives of all time. I can tell you that firsthand as I competed against him for many years and got my ass kicked enough to leave the business. <laughs> Not true. Not true. But John, really, we really appreciate all your candor, all your always deep thoughts and interesting perspective. We appreciate you being here on Basic. And I just want to say on a daily basis, there are two basic cable shows that I miss so dearly that I miss the people. One is Mad Men. The other is The Americans. I miss them every single day. Thank you for saying that, Jen. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. This has been really fun. Well, that was an absolute masterclass in television. And I'm a guy who's been in television my whole career and most of my life. And boy, I learned a lot of things in that conversation. I did too. I mean, I could have talked to him for another hour at least. You had talked before about how smart John Landgraf is. And I think that certainly comes across to anybody who was listening. He just seems to know everything about everything. But in a good way, like not in a, he's not, he's not a know-it-all by any stretch of the imagination. He has this incredible combination of smarts. He's a really creative guy, a super thoughtful guy and a down-to-earth guy. And it's almost like a lethal combination in the entertainment business, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't get to talk as much about some of the programming, some of the shows that have been big in the past, say, 10 years on FX. But, you know, you look at the things that have been on there, like the Americans, like Better Things. Louie, we didn't talk about too much. We did not talk about that. Atlanta. Atlanta, which is an extraordinary show uh, and continues to be an extraordinary show. And then they've, you know, I was at one of their panels the other day and the things that they have coming out this year, they've got great stuff. They've got the Sex Pistols show. They've got Under the Banner of Heaven with Andrew Garfield, which I've seen a little bit of. And then this show that's been, I think, gestating for a long time called The Old Man with Jeff Bridges, which I've seen the first episode of that and has one of the best fight scenes that I've seen in a TV show or or movie for that matter in a long time in that it's a really realistic and ugly hair pulling fight scene, which I think is how fights actually are in real life. So, I mean, they just continue to put out just really quality, quality shows. Yeah, he's never really stopped from almost the day he got there. It's been an incredible run. Yeah, of course, they have, like anybody else, they have their occasional missteps, but it feels like fewer than most networks. I I always feel like FX gets it right more than they don't. Almost like HBO in that regard. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was kind of alluding to when I said internally within the business, if you're pitching a show, you would want to go to FX. Like that brand has meaning because you know... I mean, I think John Landgraf has a, a great reputation for the way that he works with creative people. But then you also look at the shows that they've produced and you go, OK, that's company I want to be in. Of course. But I do think John's a big draw. I mean, he is such a champion of writers and creative people and the brand. And I just get the sense that he's 
always fighting for what's best for the show, for his network, for his brand. And he's always going to do the right thing, I think. Mm -hmm. Certainly one of the more respected, if not maybe the most respected executive right now among TV critics, if for no other reason that he does the math of counting how much shows we're watching, (laughs) because we can't do math. We're not going to do that counting. Yeah. I also appreciated, even when I was competing against him, he sort of became this spokesperson for linear television and basic cable. And as we were seeing the advent of streaming starting to eat our lunch, I have to say, I really appreciate it. First of all, he's a lot smarter than me and most of my colleagues. And to have him out there in such a smart, thoughtful and data-filled way Mm -hmm. was kind of incredible. He was really fighting the good fight every day um, Mm -hmm. and still is. And I, now I find it fascinating that he's actually working with and for uh, a company that's very invested in, in the streaming business, straddling both. And as John Landgraf would do, figuring it out. Mm-hmm. There was a question I wanted to pose to both of you and I didn't get to it. So if you don't mind being put on the spot, I'll pose it to you. Uh, should I answer like John Landgraf would or? No. Well, <laughs> you can answer this with regard to John and um, and yourself. Like, I'm All just right. curious, what are the qualities that you think a person needs to have in order to be a great executive overseer of a network? You know, I, I, I get asked that a lot, or I used to get asked that a lot. You have to love the process. You have to trust your instincts, I think, first and foremost, because that's where it all starts. You know, you have to be able to hear an idea and maybe hear some of the promise in it. Maybe it's not all there and, you know, be willing to take a risk and a gamble. So you have to be, I think, a good listener You've got to, I think, understand your audience to a certain degree and the audience you're going for. You've got to have trust in the people that are both working for you and the ones you ultimately hire to produce and make shows for you. You have to be willing to stand up for your shows and for your convictions and be able to take a punch and also know that you're not going to succeed every time out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, more often than not, certainly in my case, you're going to be wrong more than you're going to be right. Mm-hmm. But if you can be right enough, you can kind of make a career out of it. But I've always thought of it as something you got to have sort of instincts. And it's all about, you know, kind of lining up your instincts and trusting your instincts mm-hmm. and then having the conviction to stand behind them. That's scary. It's but super it- scary. And it's not, you know, leadership is a big part of it. So it's got to be somebody who's willing to stand out in front of the crowd and lead and take a punch if they need to take a bow when you get when you hit the home run. But take a punch when you don't, which, like I said, it happens sort of more often than not. You know, look, I mean, John Landgraf is different than somebody like Les Moonves, who was a very much an, an acclaimed programmer and TV executive, not looked back on it so fondly. Today, they both had completely different styles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Fred Silverman was a different guy than Brandon Tartikoff. Chris Albrecht, who ran HBO in the glory years, is very different mm-hmm. from Richard Plepler, who ran it after him. Mm-hmm. But they were all leaders. They all followed their instincts. They all had a great sense of their audience and brand. It's not for everybody. And it's a lot harder than it looks. And what I would say about all this, and I think John would say too, is no matter how good you are, no matter how smart you think you are, everybody needs to be a little lucky. And anybody who's Mm -hmm. had any success in this field is certainly a little lucky. I always tell people, you're looking at, well, right now you're listening to the luckiest man you've ever heard. So (laughs) I I had a lot of luck. I like to think I'm smart, like to think I had good instincts, but you know, there's plenty of luck there. I also think a really important quality, especially now, is just being nimble and being open to change because everything is constantly, I mean, that's probably true in every job really, but. I think that's, you know, but that is a good point. You need to roll with the punches. And if you stand in one place 
too long. Again, in any job, as you said, you're going to get rolled over, Mm -hmm. particularly in the media business these days where it's just moving so fast. And John is as nimble as he is smart. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, given how much there is to talk about with him, maybe we'll even have him on another time. This was certainly a great conversation. We were happy to have John Landgraf, and we will hopefully see you again on the next episode of BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow follow the show show so you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.